Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all. This is the official part. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know oh. what would happen in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I do know what would happen in Chicago after the uh, Don't three worry gallons. about the vote. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> the sentencing comes. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Dan Ashley, news anchor at ABC 7 News in San Francisco. Very kind, thank you, and uh, longtime member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and your moderator tonight. We are thrilled to have you with us. I'm pleased, very pleased to introduce today's speaker, Rahm Emanuel, former two-term mayor of Chicago, former White House chief of staff for President Obama, and author of the new book, The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. You notice he didn't say how White House chiefs of staff are running the world. It's mayor. It's like like the perfect title for a middle child. (laughs) Uh, Well, we're going to get into that, I think. Mr. Emanuel also previously served as senior advisor to President Clinton and as chairman of both the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the uh, House Democratic Caucus. And, you know, at a time of anxiety and concern about the effectiveness of our national government, Rahm Emanuel believes that local government offers clear vision for both progressives and centrists alike of how to uh, get things done in America today, to make a difference in a real way. In his book, uh, Rahm says that cities, rather than the federal government, stand at the center of innovation and effective governance. Mayor Emanuel points out that cities are the most ancient political institutions, dating back thousands of years. Think of Rome and Greece, of course. And he argues that they have reemerged as the nation-state's of our time, which is a really interesting concept. He postulates that mayors are accountable to their voters to a greater degree than any other elected official, and that progressives and centrists can best accomplish their goals by focusing their energies on local politics. So to discuss all of this against the backdrop, of course, of the very fascinating 2020 presidential race, <laughs> please welcome uh, Rahm Emanuel. Thank you. And there's a lot to get into here, but I'm going to start with the topical, and then we'll move into the book. And, and I did mention Rome, <laughs> Athens, and, and ancient cities, but I want to talk about not just my local. kindergarten years. Your kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> you look good. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk first about uh, you. Are, you're on our network on ABC all night on Super Tuesday. Uh, anything surprise you on Super Tuesday? Yeah, that I stayed up to 2 a.m. Uh, I usually go to bed. I get up at 4, 30, 5 o'clock. So to stay up at 2 is a miracle. My wife was like, you're still up? No. So here's what surprised me. If you could step back and just look at this is uh, for about a year, we had a big part of our party saying that what we need to do. It, well, let me say it this way. Headline, Tuesday resolved a lot of debates inside the party. Base turnout model. We're going to have this incredible day, base. You want to energize the base, which is more urban, et cetera. Or do you try to deal with these fickle voters called moderates and that live in the suburbs? And what was interesting, uh, I, for those that are in downstairs, that was I was just kind of brushing the... Uh, <laughs> and I do want to thank the people in the uh, overcrowd room, and I'm going to come down there later. But the energy was among uh, what would be moderate voters, which I would call more pragmatic, etc. And the lower turnout, I actually 
Bernie Sanders would have done better had actually, quote unquote, the base turned out. Why and didn't so, the base turn out for him? Well, I, first of all, I think I'm writing a piece right now. But since you asked, I'll give you a preview of the piece. <laughs> but one of the what an insightful question. Uh, no, uh, now, will the answer be insightful? Let me say That's this. I just want to be really clear. This is my last of this week's I- interviews, and so I'm like, be, this, what, this is like as a former ballet dancer, you should not be this loose, okay? Uh, okay. So I I get a, I get a self edit. Uh, who knows? Some f bombs will come across there. So here's what I, here's what I would say is. First of all, I think this is going to be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a family-friendly show. Uh, I think that the there's a misnomer mm. uh, that somehow the party was moving, quote unquote. I don't really don't like this left, uh, but that said, um, the party is the uh, oh, two things. One is overarching, is pragmatic. The singular goal, number one, number two, number three, beating Donald Trump. If you can answer that, they'll get over everything else. Uh, and and so that, I think, is an indication. And two, since 2018 and 19, and then returning in these elections, wasn't true in the first three, is been a heightened uh, turnout because in the suburbs. Now, one of the things I've been arguing since 2018 is if you look at both Clinton's elections, Obama's election, the 06 election, where I was chair of the DCCC when Nancy became speaker, and then 2018 – there's a singular model. It's what I call a metropolitan majority. And that is a suburban-urban coalition around transportation, education, environmental protections, et al., et cetera. And that that's what we want to do. The Republican strategy, and then obviously for statewide, not min- minimize your losses in the rural areas. And to win the White House, the electoral map, and to win the majority in the House, to win Senate seats, it's the same geography, same ideology, same effort. Bernie was offering, and I, which I think is, is faulty, is you don't really need the suburbs or moderate voters, et cetera. You just need a really strong turnout of the base. And the fact is it's willing, you're willing to take six models that are all the same, cast it aside, and say we're going to go with this other thing called Jeremy Corbyn's model. And I think it would turn out the same way. Mm. And I think they're not showing up uh, because it's not, you know, he didn't excite him or whatever it may be. But the more important thing to me was what happened in the suburbs across the country, not Virginia, North Carolina, swing states, you know, very important states, Minnesota. So everybody says, oh, Joe Biden's doing very good and very well with African-Americans. True. Have any of you been to Minnesota? Not a very big guy. Uh, so, I mean, uh, yeah, it's like one giant crate and barrel store. OK, it's just not uh, that. Uh, uh, so I would just say to you, it was a, a cross section. And if you look at uh, Texas, he did all we did r- well in rural. He did well in suburbs. Now, one of the things I know about politics is just because something happened in a primary doesn't tr- automatically translate to the general election. But it's a it does tell you certain things of where uh, a candidate's strengths are. And so to me, that was what happened on uh, Tuesday. Now, the one thing here's the one constant we know for the last year in the Democratic primary. Whatever you think on Tuesday is not going to be true by Thursday. Mm. And so there's, you know, Joe's probably best thing that's going to happen for him when Washington State, Idaho, Missouri, Mississippi and Michigan vote is there will not be a debate before him. It'll be the first set of primaries. No, that's important. I mean, given his performance. And the one thing separate, you can kind of know where Mississippi is going to go and you kind of have an idea where Washington State is going to go. And because of what happened in 2016, Michigan has a first among all equals that day. 
And what I know about Michigan from Bill Clinton 92 forward, it has a mercurial attitude towards the establishment and the incumbent. And so if Biden cannot run going into Michigan, the strategy of all these endorsements, and I was Barack Obama's co-pilot, I'm best positioned to beat Trump, give me some more endorsements and we're done. He has got to fill in the blanks now. And the good news is he's, you know, after Tuesday, he's getting a second look, but he better fill them in. Ron, did it surprise you that Biden did so well on Super Tuesday? Two weeks ago, he looked dead in the water. If anybody says that it didn't surprise you, I think it surprised Joe. Uh, He looked a little uh, surprised. Yeah, yeah, he confused his wife and his uh, sister. He didn't even know who they were. (laughs) It's true. He also, I think he called it Super Thursday at one point. Uh, That would be so (laughs) Trump-esque. So you were surprised that he did that well. He he predicted he'd do well in the South. Yeah, ready? I'm going to go out on a limb. Yes, I was shocked to... Really? Yeah. Who, who, who would be? Were you surprised that Bloomberg did so poorly? Uh, Spending no. Spending half a billion dollars? No. Why? Because I think, actually, you know, one of the things that uh, people that either practice politics or... Comment, don't dismiss the voters' uh, judgment. They'll smell it. And they saw them, and it was like, here's, you know, here's all this money, which, you know, has a plus and a minus. He's moving up. And then he gets on stage, and the person doesn't equal the image. And they said, well, this dog won't hunt. Mm. That's a Bill Clinton thing. I did not have that in Chicago. (laughs) Uh, Project the next few months. We would say, there's that dog that doesn't hunt. (laughs) Good Southern expression. I could do a good Bill Clinton. Well, Uh, you're around him a long time. Well, you get yelled at for seven years. You'd be amazed what you can pick up. I just, I love it. I love this San Francisco. That's it. Some of my best memories are from the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> I, I love you all very much. You got some wine. That is a this pretty is a good big deal here in Hope. We had some people from San Francisco in Hope. So go. All right. Ron brought material with him. As yeah. you uh, just walk people through what you expect to happen the next few months of the primary season. Uh, here's what I think. You're not going to have a normal primary. What does that mean? But Donald Trump's going to be in the primary. He's going to get, you know, he is not. First of all, remember, to give you an example of the one thing I just said, whatever you thought on Tuesday is not true by Friday or Thursday, is a month ago, everybody was saying, boy, Donald Trump's having an amazing run. Down on the impeachment, you know, the Democratic Party can't run a caucus in Iowa, the computer. He's got, uh, I forgot there was one other. uh, Stock market was soaring. Yeah, but there was one other, like, an amazing thing that happened. And so it was like, oh, my God, he's got a juggernaut going on. Yeah, in the stock market. But there was one other thing, and I can't remember. Now, the central, the uh, center left, not left, has emerged. The administration, when it comes to this virus, looks like they couldn't organize a one-car parade. Um, And that's a longer-term subject about the CDC, and I'm hoping the one thing that comes out of it is that we actually get serious about, you know, you can't have the private sector run your disease management and control. You just can't. And you better get serious about investing. You know, it's like, but anyway, that's another subject. So he now looks like, you know, and then you also have a lot of other challenges around the world. The economy is going to, without a doubt, take a hit here, not just the quote-unquote stock market, the economy itself. So what was true a month ago where people were like, boy, this looks like easy street, this guy's going to get reelected. Well, you know, the candidate that he didn't want to run looks like they're going to get the nomination. The economy and the stock market that he was living and dying by is more dying than living. And so I think, and he also looks, this is going to be like the worst moment for him. 
It includes science. It includes trust. It includes transparency. And it includes competence. This is a disaster for him. Interesting. Uh, and so that I think so, you know, I think he's going to realize what he knows. And when you look at the results of Tuesday, which matter to him, he is dying in the suburbs and he cannot allow Biden to get his sea legs. So he's going to be this is not like let the Democratic primary go up. I'm going to go build my numbers up. He is going to be actively in that primary and he's going to he's going to make it. Uh, he's going to realize that Biden's got it. So he's going to stoke. Sanders' resentment and his voters' resentment at the Democratic establishment. And he is going to be in this primary, so it will not be like any other primary you saw. And, and your prediction would be Biden will win the nomination, not Bernie Sanders? I guess Tuesday is not Thursday, is my prediction. Okay. No, I do think, if you had it, say, today, I feel like I'm jinxing it. Again, it would go against what I just said. I, I think we got, here's what I would say. At the end of the day, which will be a long time from now, you got seven more turns in the barrel. But Biden will be the nominee. And I'll, here's what I do, and you heard it here first, because I'm going to say this Sunday. <laughs> I actually think this virus, besides all the science, the management, the capacity, here's why I really think it's going to screw him up. Um, I do love the silence in the room. <laughs> <laughs> They're hanging on every it's, word. It's like, a, it's like all the theater classes I took at Sarah Lawrence is really paying off. Uh, <laughs> My parents would be so happy that the education paying it myself here. <laughs> if this rolls like this, you're not going to be able to have the normal political rallies. And he, and you have to understand, Bill Clinton had a psychology, Barack Obama, they all have a psychology. He is a narcissist that needs that rally. He will be a caged animal not having a rally. And the, is that an amen? Are we at church or something like that? <laughs> Are you from Chicago? Yeah, yeah I can tell, man. <laughs> this Jewish Chicago kid got good at his Baptist ministry. Wait till you hear my sermon. I'm pretty good at that sucker. I think, okay. I so think I hear, President Trump has had 100 rallies or so since he took office. He is not, as this virus goes, and if any one of you try to steal this, I, I'm, I, I worked this for Sunday. This is my deal, man. <laughs> Go get your own idea, okay? <laughs> Here, here's the deal. He is going to, they're going to start to, can't, you can't go to sporting events, et cetera, et cetera. He's not going to have rallies. And he needs that rally. He needs it emotionally and psychologically. Now, look, you all know this. This is not breaking news. The Oval Office is really a lonely place. You're getting your ass kicked all the time. Uh, and he needs that energy. He needs that adulation. He needs that admiration. And he's not going to have it. So he's going to be sitting upstairs in the solarium in the, over in the East Wing tweeting away at two in the morning, and he's going to be saying outrageous things that only are going to reinforce to those swing voters. Uncle Donald's lost it, man. But, but Ron, that's temporary. Coronavirus will only last so long, and we'll oh, get I back think to I, I think you're right, it's only going to last so long, but it's going to last long enough to re- reinforce an image. Okay. This, this is not, if you think this is rolling in like the tide and rolling out in a day, not happening. All right. Let's move on uh, from, uh, and I want to. Uh, we'll get to the book in a moment. But I don't really. A couple of, is it, isn't that why you're here? Give me this. Give me this. Give me this book. <laughs> <laughs> now he asked me before I. Before, no, wait a second. No, wait a minute. You, you asked me before I came here and brought my 
small little Jewish tush all the way here to sign you a note. And I wrote, Dan, thanks for all you do to inform the public. So I wrote you. We're about to and then, no, no. We're, you go ahead and do everything you want on National Politics. Whenever you want to get to the book, just let me know, okay? I'm going to go hang with my homies over here who understand church. And when you want to get to the book and sell a couple I'll call you back okay, up. Yeah, okay, no, we're yeah. going to sell your book. Yeah. Don't worry. Go ahead. You're okay. a lot of fun. Don't, no, don't no. worry about it. Listen, I, I, you, you have had such an interesting career and such a diverse career. What is the best job you've had in politics? Mayor. No question. No, no. Here's I, I'll hear it. Chief of Staff, Congressman. Senior advisor, caucus chair, all over here on this side of the equation. Mayor beats all three combined. Why? So you can get to sit with you after you write a book and do an interview. Uh, I, I here, realize that's a no, treat. You know, it's but... beyond. You have no idea. Being a mayor is a tough, tough job. Yeah, no, no, no. It's the highest of highs and the lowest of highs. And I'll tell you uh, why. Uh, beyond my emotional attachment to the city of Chicago and what it provided for uh, my family is... Uh, all right, don't suck up now. That's uh, that's all. That's that's a penalty. That's ten yards, man. All right, here's the, here's the deal. Is uh, I'll give you some examples because they are the policies dearest and most important. So they're in the space of education. Sean Reardon at Stanford acknowledged Chicago has the fastest growing graduation rate. Ninety eight percent of our uh, our kids outperform ninety eight percent of the rest of the country in their grade level. I'm reading a math gains. Now, I look, I started this job as mayor, 6'2 and 250 pounds. I'm like 148 <laughs> dripping wet. It does beat you up. Yeah, but here's the thing. So I, five years ago, I created the Chicago Star Scholarship. If you get a B average, community college is free in the city of Chicago. Dreamers can get it. It's the only public scholarship a dreamer can get in America for education. And we not only give you tuition, we give you books and transportation. You guys are copying it. San Francisco, uh, Seattle's copying it. Boston, Denver, Louisville. It's a number of cities across the country. And I have, uh, we do a big thing when we announce who are the kids that get the Chicago Star Scholarship. All you got to do is get a B average. And I've had parents just collapse in my arms crying and thanking me. And it's not, I wouldn't have them do it today with the virus, but uh, uh, you decided you wanted to do something. And, I, and one of the things that I write in the book and this is important to me is education today is a divider. And the real question is, can you make it uh, something that brings people together? And given your technology, your economy, et cetera, and I, want, I hope we actually do get to more of this because I think it's important for what we want to see in our cities. You can do something like that in a way, and I did a lot on healthcare, you know, ACA, I did it for President Clinton with kids care, et cetera. But the immediacy and the intimacy of that policy, and you can feel it and see it, and I have... 8,000 kids who have all become Chicago stars, 81% of them are the first one in the family to go to college. I was at a, an event like this literally a week ago in Chicago. Uh, the Ideas Week did it. And this young man I happened to know because of other events I had done, and his mother come. was on the south side of Chicago. He had gone to community college on the Chicago Star. We then also created, three years ago, a thing called the Chicago Star Plus. And that is if you keep the B average while you're in community college, every college and university in the city, which is 18, have to give you 25 to 50% off the tuition. Really? Yeah. And so it's called Chicago Star Plus. And he came to this event with his mother. He's going to go to uh, 
Columbia in Chicago, not Columbia, New York. And they, and he, I knew that was, I had heard enough through friends. And here, and his mother just said, I want to come and just, I want to buy the book. I want to tell you how he's doing and just to say, thank you. Mm. I've been a congressman. I didn't know what the hell I was voting on. I mean, I knew what I was doing and stuff like that, but I really, you know, it's just another vote. And you don't see the impact directly as you do. Yeah, no. So let me also be honest. I mean, that's the highs. I met a man the other day because I rebuilt the entire uh, mass transit system throughout the city. We'll talk about that. But I took 40. uh, I said to him, uh, where do you work? And he lives on the south side of Chicago. He takes the red line up, then switches to the blue line, goes to the suburbs and works at a chicken factory, food factory. He said it used to take him two hours. It's now down to an hour and 15 minutes. And so you can do things. And they'll, you know, in Chicago, I, I have a joke when you're mayor, I take the train to work. You either get this or another digit. Uh, and that's it. You know, you get, and you know that, you know, the other thing is the lows. I mean, the lows are low, man. I've been, you get woken up and you're at a hospital with a mother and her child that, you know, got what happened and you get, you know, I was at a, you know, I, I made it a practice and anytime a child was a, a victim of gun violence, I would go uh, visit the parent either at home, hospital, whenever it was okay, no media. Cause I, you know, as a parent, I would be in an axle if something happened to my kids. And I never thought a parent should be alone when they felt most vulnerable that they had failed in the most fundamental of their responsibilities. And I didn't want them to be alone. And you're there, it's low. Mm. And it's really just takes, there's a Yiddish word called the neshuma. It just took the neshuma out of me. And it just totally emptied me. On the other hand, you tell a parent that they don't have to take a second mortgage on their home so they can send their kid to college. So mayor... Beats all three. Did those moments when you're with parents that have lost children or those profound moments steal your resolve? I, I know it sapped your strength and is emotional difficult, but it did also steal you in a new way, reinvigorate your effort to control gun violence. Yeah. And that's uh, what Let me just say one thing. So I did it with a loss of life. I mean, I, there was one young man went to a, a basketball activity at Park District and some other kid, 13-year-old, pulled a gun. Uh, um, and he wasn't... I went to the hospital, he shot him in the leg mm. and stuff. So I made it a, pra- a practice to do. So it was not just loss of life. So that's number one. It, it does steal you. Have, it does steal you, but it would not be less than both honest or human if it didn't also steal a bit of your soul. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so, this, I mean, to your first question, it's incredibly important job, incredibly emotionally, intellectually rewarding it is also uh, has its lows that drain you. Ron, what best prepared you for that job? Oh, without, my my whole life, both uh, my growing up in a Jewish home, becoming a father, working for President Clinton and President Obama, and what I learned. I mean, uh, going to I mean, my whole life I prepared me, uh, and I drew on many things from my life to do that job. Hmm. So not just a thing. I mean, we're all a product of our. All our experience, not just your professional experiences and stuff like that. All right. Well, the book, and again. About time. Yeah. <laughs> Timing's everything. Timing is everything. Yeah, yeah, well, you yeah, let yeah. us into it brilliantly. Right? <laughs> uh, the nation, city, why mayors are now running the world. Just, we're going to get into this in a, in a, in a deep way, but w- <laughs> why are mayors now running the world? Give us the overview, the umbrella. Why do you believe mayors well, are now running the world? Yeah, I, well, it, because it, it, well, it touches on a couple things. First, the center of gravity of our politics is moving local away from national. That's number one. We've done this before. If you think of kind of Teddy Roosevelt to 
Lyndon Johnson or whatever is one era of time where we redefine the national government, et cetera. Um, we have been in this period of time where it switches and flows back and forth. Where do you work? Where do you live? Where do you send your kids to school? How do you get from home to work? What are the amenities in your communities, libraries, parks, et cetera? Those are all the services the local government provides you. And in a period of time of alienation, lack of control, you actually believe you can influence the government that influences how you live your life. And so that is a, uh, and look at the data, 74% of all Americans have trust and confidence in their local government, one of the highest institutions with confidence, national at 22. And if you're a progressive, the basic premise of a progressive is that government's a force for good. Well, you can't do good things or significant things if people don't think government can run a one-car parade. So that's one. Two, as the federal government has retreated from its responsibilities, et cetera, not only are mayors dealing with schools, transportation, parks, libraries, all the amenities, safety, et cetera, they are now, both based on constituencies and other things, taking on income inequality, inclusive economic growth, climate change, immigration, scientific research, they're taking on things that used to be only the purview of the federal government or Brussels or London, et cetera. And I think that uh, that is an example. And if you looked at the, what you think are the weaknesses, or at least I pose them in the book, the federal government is distant, disinterested, and dysfunctional. And local government is intimate, immediate, and impactful. And so all the weaknesses match up against all the strengths. Um, and that, to me, is why... Mayors today, uh, and I don't think it's an accident, not only did we have more mayors running this time for a president than at any time in the last hundred years, both parties combined. And it's not an accident that the mayor of London is now the prime minister of Great Britain. And you have this emergence that mayors have something that they offer. And then let me say one final point to underscore. Uh, I can talk about schools, which we will, transportation, housing, inclusive growth, etc. I also think this period of time will be defined as a period of alienation. And it's known as for the deaths of despair of people, both through opiates, heroin, suicide, don't have a sense of belonging and believing anymore in themselves. And only a mayor has the kind of wherewithal and the, what I call in the book, the soft power to weave places of worship, community groups, not-for-profits, into creating, once again, a community where people feel they have a sense of belonging, which is so distant from our body politic. So both on hard issues, public transportation, schools, and on softer issues, but I think nonetheless valuable issues, mayors are uniquely qualified to meet the challenges we have at this time. That's a lot to ask of our mayors. And, uh, yeah, and you do ask it, though. I mean, that, that is true, and you still ask for it. Hmm. And the irony is you have kind of probably less resources but more responsibilities. And so you get immensely frustrated, but you still have confidence that it can do its job. And you talk in the book about major cities all over the world, but it's not just major cities that are having increasingly uh, more influence and role in what previously was thought to be, as you said, federal government issues like global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's relatively new. Look, I mean, the what I try to do in the book was not just say, you know, San Francisco, Chicago, L.A., New York, Beijing, Paris, Shanghai, Paris, London, that I talk about 
So we created in Chicago full-day kindergarten for every child, full-day pre-K for every child, an hour and 15 minutes of additional educational time every day. So we added four years to a child's education, and we created the free community college. So we went earlier in the life of a child and longer in the life of the child. Mayor of Louisville, Greg Fisher, not the biggest city in the world, he's come up with a cradle-to-career, not too dissimilar then, but it's his sheet of music off of the similar to my sheet of music, etc. And so you have big, medium, small cities. I comment about the mayor of Carmel, Indiana, who's a Republican, mayor of Anaheim. And so it's both Democrats, Republicans. The size doesn't matter. You're going to be involved in immigration policy. You're going to be dealing with environmental policy because where you live, where you work, where you play, and how you handle the policies around that are going to determine the quality of your city and the decisions you make over the next two to three years will determine what your city looks like and uh, is uh, in the next 20 to 30 years. Are mayors, local mayors having an increased impact on the federal government in terms of pressure and influence? No, because if that was the case, they would both pass a minimum wage and gun control. But and should so, they? Yes. Well, here's the thing that's uh, the second to last uh, chapter, and I, but I talk about it throughout, which is what I talk about is ideas move horizontally. And what I mean by that is, if you think of like the New Deal, et cetera, and other eras, ideas would kind of move around in these laboratories of democracy, and then they would float up and inform national policy. That's how we all study. I mean, that's at least how I studied it. I think that's, I'm hoping that was taught through all history classes. Uh, today, ideas don't move vertically, they move horizontally. So I'm proud, obviously, we were the first city to create Chicago Star Scholarship. There's like eight or nine cities doing it. Stop, put a pin in it, come back. Gesundheit, get out of the room. Uh, <laughs> it was a joke, it was a joke. Uh, the Secretary of Education has not asked a single mayor or a single city to come to inform the Department of Education. Now that you're making not 12th grade, but 14th grade, the new minimum, like, tell us how it's going. Neither committee on education in the House and Senate has asked for a hearing. I'm not saying pass a bill. Just like, like, what's going on? No mayor has gotten on a plane and flown to Washington and, mm. and said, we think you should know something about this, and would you help us? So basically, we, no mayor thinks Washington's going to, the cavalry's coming, and the cavalry's not really interested in the battle that's going on. Uh, and I think that's really, I mean, so could they influence it? Yeah, but they're... You know, I'll give you an example. If you really kind of come up with national policy. So we did this all. I said in Chicago we had a B average, free. We, so our system is the second largest in the United States is in Chicago. The mayor appoints a chancellor and the board. So we are spending, let's call it $600 million. 39 was for remedial. So I said, give me five of that 39. I didn't really ask because I was appointed. So I said, we're going to take five of the 39. And if you get a B average, right. And the reason the five is I'm rewarding success, not buying insurance on a failure. And it changed the trajectory of the school system. And now, if you had a national government, you say, since a lot of these kids, 81% of the kids are the first in the family to go to college, the retention rate and the completion rates are double and triple the, uh, the norm. Hmm. So it's clearly working. Okay. Like the federal government. You don't want to pass free community college? Okay, how about 
cities that adopt this policy get double Pell Grants. You don't have to come up with $20 billion, you just some. And to me, there's just like, not only not a conversation, it's been not, the national government is treating cities with this benign neglect. That said, cities are all copying and replicating. I was at a conference on something, and the mayor, Gregor of Vancouver, mentioned smart poles for streetlights. We're now in Chicago on the third of a fourth year implementing smart poles, streetlights mm-hmm. in the city of Chicago. We don't, we all steal with each other, and if it works, it's an original idea we thought of. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh, federal government is, is, is sort of by its nature very removed from local government yeah. and local communities. Now, I am for a strong federal government, so I want to be, and I would like a partnership. I just, you can't stand still and say, you know, I'm going to wait until they pass free community college. I, don't, I mean, you'll be like Godot, man. You'll be right. waiting there. How do cities, and this is a huge issue in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and across yeah. California, <laughs> deal with the issue that everybody talks about here, and I think more around the country than ever before, homelessness. There are 150,000 homeless people in California. How do cities deal effectively with that? What did you try to do in Chicago? All right, I'm going to say this, and I can run faster than the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, so... Uh, one of the things we're going to have to figure out as a society is how to involve the new economy in dealing with challenges. So when Airbnb was trying to come to Chicago, I said to Airbnb, I'm going to pass a set of regulations so you can operate, but we're going to have regulations oversight. And I'm putting a 4% tax that's beyond all the hotel taxes you have to pay, an additional 4% that goes just to homelessness. And when I realized I passed it, et cetera, I then realized... Boy, I was a cheap suit. So I put another two. I put another two percent for domestic violence shelters. That's another amen in church. I'm with you, girl. Uh, and give you another example. And I'm going to come right back to homelessness. Is uh, when and I I read this book. I want to. I don't want to leave. Don't ask another question until no. I get to the homeless no. thing. I read this book called uh, Dreamlands in 2013 when it came out. It's about the opiate. It's an unbelievable book. So I gave it to Obama. I said, you got you to read this book. And this was in the midst of when they were dealing with, appropriately, sexual assaults on campus. I said, I, I get all the White House conference. I said, there is a scourge going on, et cetera. So we did three things in Chicago. One, if you uh, are a medical representative selling pharmaceutical or medical products, you have to pay $800, and it went straight into drug treatment. Two... All city employees, I couldn't do it for all city residents, all city employees, you only get five days worth of painkillers unless it's a life-threatening illness, meaning cancer, end-of-life treatment. And then third, we put together a conference between the city of Chicago, Cook County, DuPage County on public health and emergency care, et cetera, and then we made sure all officers had Narcon, et cetera, homelessness. But I wanted to say, again, and the first city ever in 2014 to sue the pharmaceutical industry City of Chicago. Uh, and I'm, so we did a series of things, but why is Chicago ahead of both HHS, AMA, FDA, American Dental, and the pharmacies? Why are we leading on a set of policies when you're dealing with a public health crisis? So on the homelessness, one is we did the Airbnb. And those two examples were about how to draw industry into solving discrete problems. I think, I don't have this scientifically, but I'm going to go out on a limb and 
for the Commonwealth Club, and it's my last speech. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going to just say it. Uh, but I've studied this and thought about it. I mean, I thought about it. I shouldn't say I studied it. I think any time uh, your economy hits more than 20% concentrated in either financial services, technology, a high-paying, high industry, you have a massive homeless problem. Chicago, for four consecutive years, reduced its homeless problem. I have basically no... We, have, we went down each year, call it on average, 500. Four consecutive years. We basically took out 90% of the homeless veterans have shelter. We then took a discrete population. We then started dealing with homeless youth. Mm. My tenure came out, but we reduced it every year. We have the most diversified economy in the United States of America. Chicago? Yeah. No sector has more than 14% of its employment. And when you look at New York, Seattle, uh, Boston, you guys. San Francisco, for sure. Your economy is your economy is too concentrated in tech, which has a, an ever-increasing wage scale to be competitive, and it basically drives the middle class into poverty and then into their cars. Mm-hmm. And... If you look at the cities, forget, everybody says, oh, weather. If you go across the cities that have a massive crisis, it's not weather that's the determining factor. New York is over preponderance in the financial sector that has high education, high income, which changes the trajectory of housing. You guys have a high concentration in technology, education, wages, salaries, etc. That's not di- different in Seattle. And any time an economy, I don't know whether it's 20 or 25 percent, and I'm sure there's some academic here who's going to now try to prove the former chief of staff of the president wrong. <laughs> but there's something about the, a concentration of economy in one of, you know, whether it's healthcare, finances, technology, that because of the uh, competitiveness about both educational attainment, but more importantly, also the wages you will pay, it drives a homeless and housing crisis. Homeless and housing, yeah. not just one. There's things you can do on taxes. There's things you can do on affordability and uh, credits, etc. There's things you can do like Airbnb, etc. But in the end of the day, I mean, look, we made different changes on zoning, but by way of example, this year we have 10,000 apartments coming online in Chicago. I don't think you guys are... I don't, I remember, if I'm not, one year, I forgot what the number was in Chicago. I'm just, I got the direction, I don't have the number, so I don't, we had produced, or more apartments came online, available, than you guys had done in three years. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And so you, this is not for me to take on your zoning issues and don't say, you know, headline, a manual tax zoning in San Francisco. Uh, But you have, you have to deal with this on multiple fronts, not a singular front. And it's not just not-for-profit charity work on home. You have to deal with public policy. You're going to have to deal with zoning. And you also have to deal with the diversity of your economy. And then I get to this one thing. The one, and again, I'm a firm believer in this. So I'll give you one anecdote, and it came to me. So, you know, the first Friday of every month, you get the unemployment numbers. On Thursday night, the president and his chief of staff and the vice president get it at 9 o'clock. And, you know, we were in those early months with Obama. You know, we were like in a fetal position because you were like 800,000 jobs, you know, seven, you know, and unemployment. So when you're at the worst moment when unemployment is like nearly 11 percent, the unemployment rate for a person with a college degree never exceeded 
So in the worst moment of the recession, if you had a college degree, you basically had full employment. Mm. And the reason I did what I've done on the community colleges, besides helping parents and kids, is if you, A, a high school degree, you earn what you learn. And if you don't give people access to the next two years, they're going to be cut out of the economy. If they're cut out of the economy, we got a real problem in this country socially. And B, it's n- that community college degree not only gives you a- access to a job, it gives you access to a career. Mm-hmm. And an access to career gives you mobility. Right, and choice. And, yeah, and so there's a whole host of more than economic social forces that come to play with that. And so to me, to deal with the housing issue, you're going to have to deal with a whole set of social and economic mobility issues that, uh, A, once again, a mayor is on their own trying to solve. Earn what you learn. That's a great phrase to remember. How you want can another a, one? Uh, how can a mayor I'll get you, another one? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is. I'm very serious about this. Kids drop out of college in fourth grade, hmm. and if you want them to succeed, you got to deal with them. I don't mean deal with them, but you got to get start providing uh, public education when they're four years old. They drop. They kids do not drop out freshman year. If you are not reading and doing your math for in fourth grade. Don't think it's going to happen to you. Everything. It's You're not behind like forever. What can a mayor do in a city like San Francisco or others? You mentioned Chicago is the most diverse uh, in terms of industry and economy. What can a, a mayor do in, 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 the, in San Francisco or other communities that are weighted one way or another? How can we create a more diverse economic base? Well, think about your history. I don't know. Look, I'm not here to do self-help for San Francisco, Okay. <laughs> That, that's Wait a minute. That, that, no, Mayors are running the world, Rama. Well, for, I'm going to do you're, for this type of advice. It's more than 22 bucks. Okay. Uh, so here's the thing. The good news for San Francisco is I don't know shit. Let's start there. Okay. You guys started off as a financial center, went to a tourism center, and now is a technology center. So you've morphed a couple of times. Now I don't know about this recent reiteration. What I read, it sounds like you know started in the valley. Over in Silicon Valley, it got too expensive and it migrated up here. But I got to believe it's more than, well, it's cheaper up here than there. I just got to believe that. Uh, and you couldn't go from financial through tourism to this without somewhat of a strategy. Now, I don't want to always, you know, Chicago was a diverse economy before I showed up, okay? It has certain unbelievable strengths. And then what you got to do is you got to double down on those strengths. Now, the one thing I can say, then it's a sector of a sector. I pulled, so I decided we we're going to become a juggernaut in cybersecurity. I don't know if you know this, Google moved their cybersecurity to Chicago. No. Okay, so let's US. You, you literally targeted that industry. U.S. history for 200. <laughs> Which city did Google move their cybersecurity to? <laughs> Chicago. Unbelievable. Give them a hand right there. Uh, no, but you target. Why that, did you pick that industry to well, target? Well, I'll tell you what. So, one is. You're never going to have a recession. Do you think cybersecurity... Ready? Cyber safety. We have a virus. Ah, you know what? We have way too many people in cybersecurity. Let's go. No, it's never going to have a recession. Okay. Number two, we have incredible research universities around the city of Chicago. Nobody was targeting it, so it's like open water. You don't have to worry about it. Number three, the federal government, the Defense Department, was creating a program for returning vets out of Iraq and Afghanistan, six-month boot camp, and you get uh, a certificate in cybersecurity. So I went to the Defense Department, and I said, You're only, they're only doing it in Maryland at a base. I said, I want you to uh, come and do it in the city of Chicago. Guess where we did it? Our community colleges. In six months, 
I can get you a $90,000 paying job. Now, if you believe what I believe, which is we've got to get people on the outside in the winner's circle of the economy. So the only other cybersecurity for the Defense Department in the United States of America, outside of the base of Maryland, city of Chicago. And then we, I convinced a number of, and I put together a conference. So I brought Loyola, Illinois Institute of Technology, University of Chicago, Northwestern, DePaul, Fermilab, Argonne. I said, we're having a policy on cybersecurity. I, wanted, I want all your cybersecurity people on the committee. I, want all, uh, I brought all the leaders of finance, et cetera. We put a working group on cybersecurity together. I said, okay, what do we got to do? And then we mapped it out, and uh, we're now ever-increasing. I thought, what is one of the big uh, – there's only four. I should remember which of the accounting firms set up their cybersecurity headquarters globally in the city of Chicago – Google did their piece there, and it was a public policy. And so you decide, but you're not going to go from A to B without both industry, universities, and the public service sector coming together. Universities and community colleges are so often, community colleges so often underrated, overlooked as a key employment creator. What did you do in Chicago to to harvest and leverage community okay, colleges? Okay, so I want to just to prove to you I've actually researched this. Okay. Which country had the best educated, you can't answer this since you said you read the book, which country do you think had the best educated army in World War II? United States of America. Yeah. We were the, had the highest high school attainment, which was at that in the middle of 40, 1944, before the war is over, Roosevelt. So go early, high school becomes universal in America, one of the first countries in the world to do it. 1944, the GI Bill. That's the American century. I don't care crap what anybody else tells you. So in, that, in the community colleges, we, I, we have the most diverse economy. So what I did was we have seven schools. I said each school is going to be a school of specialty. So Malcolm X is on the near west side, right next to the Illinois Medical District. We built a new campus with a hospital, et cetera, and it just does health care. And I told Abbott, Baxter, Allscripts, all, uh, Walgreens, et cetera, put them on a panel. I said, okay, Rush Presbyterian Hospital, Northwestern Hospital, what are you guys looking for? For nurses, home health care, pharmacy, et cetera. Design the curriculum. And I'll give you faster. So all the way, remember when uh, Mike Bloomberg about a month and a half ago was in Chicago at Olive Harvey Community College, and he announces how to bring other long-denied parts of the economy into the economy. So Olive Harvey, we created, is on the southeast side of the city, near Indiana, where the rail, the uh, port is, et cetera. We created a modern new campus, built a whole new campus like we did with Malcolm X, on transportation, distribution, and logistics. Our industrial jobs over the last six years grew by 50%. 50? 50. 50. Whole Foods distribution for the Midwest moved out of Indiana, and moved a block away from the school. That's an amen in a Jewish home. I just wanted to say that. Uh, Amazon, that would be the cynical rabbi going, I don't know, I'm going to take a look at that. Uh, Amazon, I forgot, it's like a 15 million, 20 million, some massive thing just announced on the South and doing without any assistance. Massive Midwest distribution center, not last mile distribution center. Ford has their plant there. There's a new massive TDL facility there. PepsiCo did it. 
There's about, call it about three more thousand jobs just in transportation, distribution, logistics. Hmm. And we then, you know, um, Harold Washington became the School of Financial and Professional Services for my early childhood because we were short teachers. Truman became the School of Social Services and Education. Each school had a specialty. Industry in that, in that area came in and did the curriculum. And guess what? When you do the curriculum, all of a sudden you start hiring out of it. Rush Presbyterian went from zero nurses to 100 a year out of Malcolm X. Accenture went from zero out of, right community, out of any community college so they do now about 40 kids out of Wright Community College mm. a year. Mm. And so you pick a sector, get industry in, and here's the thing. Ready? I'm going out on a limb. In the next 50 years, we're going to have a race around talent. It ain't changing. Now, one of the things that Chicago can give you is we get 150,000, 145,000 graduates with BAs every year like clockwork. From the schools in the city, from the schools in the state, from Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Iowa, all come in. You, you get on June 5th, you get on the highway between Madison, Wisconsin, and Chicago, you're roadkill. <laughs> now, if I can tell you you get an MBA out of Booth or Kellogg, a, uh, an accountant or a computer science engineer out of U of I, a sales and marketing people out of Michigan or, or Wisconsin, and I can get you also somebody that's going to handle IT out of Wright Community College, you don't have to work from the C-suite downstairs. You get everything, and it's guaranteed because the institutions of higher education will provide it. Seven consecutive years, Chicago's the number one city for corporate relocations in America. And for seven consecutive years in the United States, it was the number one city for direct foreign investment. Now, let me say this. It is not because I have a charming personality. <laughs> really? Okay. It is because... In this race for talent, we organized our institutions of learning. And here's the other thing. The number one place for the GI Bill after World War II was community colleges. Sixty percent of all returning veterans went to community colleges. You then have Sputnik, and everybody goes, well, we've got to go to new research universities, totally legit, etc. You've got to go to four-year institutions. And community colleges have become basically uh, second-tier and we have, and the World Bank came and said, Chicago's Community College is the best college and career program in the United States of America. And all we did was copy the German model. Hmm, interesting. And, well, and a university of education has never been more expensive. It shuts out a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Community college is still very accessible. Yeah. What is the best, what are the best cities, I know Chicago, uh, that you're going to say, but some of the, the cities you point See, to around the country. See what you learned in only have 45 minutes. Is that great? <laughs> Well, I'm a quick study. Okay. Uh, the, the, the cities you point to around the country, big and small, that, that, that you would point to as doing it right, something that other cities can learn from. Oh, well, first of all, you can learn from every city, and you can learn from every mayor. I'll give you a simple – I mean, this is, uh, this is more to big and small and whatever, okay? I'm hoping this – it means a lot to me, so I'm hoping this means a lot to you. So Chicago's lakefront is open. It's a beautiful thing. 100 years ago, et cetera. Our river is industrial. I'm running for office, and I said, we're going to make the river the next recreational park. I don't know what I said. It was like a flare of the moment. So I went and got us a loan. I created this river walk in the city of Chicago that has zero money from us. It's created $6 billion of new investment, and the river's come alive, et cetera. We went from seven species up to 76. It's ecologically coming back. We opened up four, bo- we've created four boathouses for kayaking, canoeing, et cetera. Two of them done by Jeannie Gang, the architect, et cetera. Blah, 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 blah. 
the sixth block of the six blocks of the Riverwalk was kind of, it was like a park, and it, to be honest, it sucked. <laughs> I mean, the whole Riverwalk has won many architectural awards. It just wasn't performing as everything like that. So I happened to be in Berlin, then to London, then to Milan, and doing a tour and doing a lot of things, of which I went to on the river, the River Spree. Uh, my middle daughter, Alana, who loves urban or design and other stuff, was on the trip with me playing First Lady. <laughs> and I couldn't get to say anything. And I was saying something at the breakfast table. And so she said, remember in Berlin when they just head out and we saw all those anorondic chairs and people were just, oh, just, why don't you just do that? So I gave the idea. I have this bad habit of coming from my... You never want to get on my card, okay? <laughs> and you don't get... Until you do what I want, you don't get off the card. And it's not a pretty sight. So I ordered the guy that runs 2FM that manages... I said, do that. And he's said, well, three months, I take the train. It goes over the river. There's nothing. So I call him. I said, what the hell's going on? He says, well, we're analyzing. I said, listen, God damn it. Go to Crate and Barrel, buy 40 chairs, I, and I said, then we'll figure out the procurement process. Did okay. you really tell him? Just go. Oh, I cleaned it up for you, what I told him. <laughs> and, you, and then it's like, this block six just comes alive. And it was just like people were waiting, and you know, it's across the street from the Merchandise Mart, which, which is a tech center in the city of Chicago, and people just, just swarm. We now are up to about like 100 chairs, et cetera, and people are doing it, and we put Wi-Fi out there, and et cetera, and so forth. But you see things and learn things all the time. I think, the, you know, there's the mayor of okay, Vancouver, I think, you know, is doing, Gregor is doing some great jobs. You learn and steal from each other all the time. Uh, I think that you know, Mayor Bloomberg, I would say, is, uh, I'll give you an idea. So rather than say that mayor has it, because the truth is it's the mayor and the residents of the city that have it together, not the mayor. Uh, I think, and I write about this in the book, I think Mayor Bloomberg's idea of putting the research center at Roosevelt Island with Cornell and Technion was not a 10 out of 10. It's a 12 out of 10. It was brilliant. Mm. And it's not an accident. Ten years ago, he announced it. And now uh, New York is rivaling Silicon Valley in tech, a university, a city research that used to be the federal government. So I copied it, and we're doing the same thing. And, and I announced it uh, four years ago. They just started. The, the governor just made a big uh, announcement, that three-quarters of a billion dollars towards it uh, with a project with I forgot which university in Israel. But we do these all the time. Uh, and you replicate, you learn things, you adapt things. Now, we made, and I'm very proud of this, uh, depending on which research you use, um, I made a big issue about food deserts. I think it's a, uh, since we only we have nothing but Yiddish speakers here, I think it's a Shanda <laughs> that you can, don't worry, there's a translation for you, because I know you don't know any Yiddish, okay? <laughs> that, uh, does that not look goyish? I mean, really? <laughs> Come on. Does that not look goyish or what? Okay. I'm, I'm sure we can say that here. That Shonda is probably the first time in the commercial club's history. So you're that going the to word pick Shonda, on me for not yeah, being Yeah, Jewish. yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. The truth of the matter. So I think it's a, I think health care is going to be delivered through food. I think it's a horrible economic thing that there's not fresh fruits and vegetables and, gro- and meats in the neighborhood. The idea that Amy and I living on the north side in Ravenswood have seven options within a mile and families in Chicago which is also true in San Francisco, have seven miles to go to find a single, is, is both economically and, more importantly, the respect that comes with that. 
And so we came up with a policy, et cetera, that was done, and it's now seen as kind of the model of how to attack the issue. And food deserts is both grocery stores, coffee shops, sit-down restaurants, not fast food. It's a whole host of things. That, uh, But every city is doing things and learning from each other what to do and how to do it and how to basically create this cohesion and uh, in a city where you can live, work, and play. Listen, we have a few more minutes, and I want to get to a few uh, questions from the audience. Is politics in your future again? Will you yes. run for office again? Oh, I don't know about that. No, 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 no. First of all, I want to be clear. When I was dating my wife, I told her I would never run for office. So I'm like, so I am six. You don't have to kind of jump in on that, okay? Okay. I'm six elections oh, behind that pledge, okay? So I am going to go back to public service. I don't know what shape it will be. But I want this time to A, rest, B, which I suck at, which is resting, but B, more importantly, I want to think about this moment and make sure I understand it and I have ideas about it. Because I'm, I may be t- not just about the book or whatever. We're going through a massive change technologically, economically, culturally, etc. I may The ideas I may have may just be full of shit. I may be totally wrong, and I want to, I really want to, I'm trying to work through a lot of stuff before I go back into public service. But you don't know, do you have any idea what that form might, that might take? I do. You don't want to talk about it? No. <laughs> You're among friends, Ron. Yeah. You've already told us what your Sunday column is going to be. No, no, no. I'm not going to. Yeah, I swear to God, if I see that idea, <laughs> I will find you and hunt you down. Okay. All right. When will, uh, this is a good question. When will <laughs> Obama endorse Biden? When, you, when he's the nominee. Not until then. Never. He wants to be the person that with a divided party, if it's divided, I don't think it's divided is more of a unifier, and B, he doesn't want to have weight in because you can't be the unifier if you put your thumb on the scale. Won't do it. Okay. Uh, this is from our audience. Uh, President Trump always is ahead of the Democrats in messaging. Uh, he seems to control the narrative. How can Democrats do a better job of that? Well, What uh, do they need to do? You know, that is true and not true. First of all, I do have, I have respect for his skills, but I'm not, I wouldn't over... I mean, look, when this economy prior to the virus, let's just, he should be at 58. He's at 43. So I'm not, I'm not sure that's a great messenger. He's, his own, he's both his greatest asset and he's his worst enemy is Donald Trump. And uh, this gets, let me put him aside for a second, because I'm speaking about this earlier question, thinking about understanding and step back and because it's relevant. Now, I am the son and the grandson of an immigrant. So I want you to hear this and not. I just, just think about it before you say, I hate him. <laughs> and, we're, you know, the test case for the welcoming city slash sanctuary city is Chicago. And I told you that we, the Chicago Star Scholarship was the first and only that allowed immigrants, dreamers to get it. If you look at what's happening in Europe and you look at here, we talk to voters basically by the summation of their wallet. And if that was the case, you know, Bernie's giving you free, absolute, guaranteed health care, free, absolute, guaranteed college education, and a basic income. And if it's only a wallet, you'd be winning this in a heartbeat. They speak to voters on cultural issues. And I think we underestimate culture. Now, we think culture is, oh, our diversity. Now, first of all, you can't have a celebration of diversity unless you have a common foundation. If you don't have that common foundation, diversity is a liability and not an asset. And so if you want, the, you want it to work as a strength, you have to have an agreed-upon foundation of what it means to be an American, et cetera. That's number one. Number two, 
I actually think one of the things when you look at where the left has lost, both in Europe and here, because I don't think we actually fully appreciate immigration is not an economic story. It's not a true to our history, although it is all that. For And this is a, remember, we're living in a time of a middle-class revolt, not a poor person's revolt. Middle-class revolts, populism, they're different. And I don't think we fully appreciate some of the cultural strains that are happening. And I think immigration, in understanding it, appreciating it, is key to making sure that we have a relationship with the middle class. Hmm. And I'm not talking about, and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about replicating what the Republicans are talking about. I'm not talking about the wall or anything. There's a cultural component to this that is more than economic. And we diminish it and dismiss it and not hear people. Why? Well, one of them is because we walk around with an attitude that we're smarter than everybody. Hmm. And people sense that. I'll give you an example. Hmm. Let me say this about what I talked about opiates, etc. You know opiates and heroin overdose kill more people than guns? You have a gun violence problem. We, how many questions were about gun violence in the Democratic debate? None. How many questions were about opiates? Really, one or two. I mean, well, is it one? Literally one? They didn't discuss it. No, they discussed it. One question. Now, who's dying by opiates? Middle class. Yeah, class. you got lower class, industrial. I mean, you 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 have a close. They have the research. It shows. It's a cross section. You close a no. Well, you close a factory, and you can see within a year the amount of prescriptions that happen for opiates. Mm. Yeah. It's an it's a hard. It's a it starts with an economic hardship. It doesn't start with a physical breakdown. Are we shouting from the top of our lungs? Are we saying now it kills more people? Now. I have dealt, I, I was the person assigned by President Clinton to take the assault weapon ban and make it law. I was assigned to do the Brady Bill, so I'm for gun control. But when we don't talk about something, it's not present. We communicate where we value your life. Mm. And the same way I would say, we talk about college. Who do you think sending kids to community college? We don't communicate to people we do communicate to people and they're hearing us really well and we're communicating some really bad things and i think we need to be sensitive that while we appeal to people appropriately about economics and about their economic interests we actually have to speak to the whole person not just their wallet Mm. and i think we miss that a lot of times and i think what we do communicate sometimes really diverges off the uh, field and um and I think it's a real challenge for Democrats. So when it comes to messaging, Trump is go- both good and bad. And uh, we have capacity also. Uh, and, uh, but we don't, we're not really doing everything we can to be on message about talking to okay. people. Uh, last question. Uh, it's just a fun question. What is it like to spar with Chris Christie on Sundays? And do you like doing television? I mean, do you like that role? Yeah, I mean, I don't. If I, well, if I didn't like it, I wouldn't be doing it every other Sunday. It's not that financially rewarding or whatever. I do like it. Here's the thing. Chris Christie and I, my assumption is the reason people like it and the show's doing well is we disagree, but we're not disagreeable. And then you get, if you want disagreeable, you get that Monday through Saturday. And there's like 20 minutes of a day where people who disagree are not disagreeable. But I do like them, and I, I will... I mean, I disagree with them a lot. I've told you this story, so the other... The other night, we were Tuesday night on the debate. 
I mean, you know, watching the elections and et cetera. And I think if you look at Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada turns, the results, you know, the turnout was not really good. And then it sprung back this Tuesday. Impeachment, impeachment's gone, and all of a sudden it snaps back. The impeachment was actually from a turnout model, Democratic Energy, a downer. And I said, look, you know, that's not going to be popular in the Democratic Party, but you've got to realize that the impeachment actually had a depressing effect on turnout. Christie's about to say, that whatever you do, I said to him said, on TV. I said, it's on TV. Whatever you do, don't agree with me. <laughs> I want you to take the other side because I said, I'm on a limb here and I don't need you sawing it off. Okay? <laughs> uh, now, here's the real reason I also, it's human, it has nothing to do with politics. Mm. I become mayor. Amy and the, and the kids, I had to leave the chief staff and we wanted the kids to finish their year. At, so she stays in Washington with the kids. We're making a decision. I get sworn in in May. I get elected in February, sworn in in May. So like the first week or whatever, Amy and the kids are still in Washington. So uh, the first week, or second week, I don't know, it was very early in my tenure. I got asked by a reporter in a live interview, where are you sending the kids to school? And I said, well, Amy and I have to discuss that. We haven't decided we're going to go. She says, no, you, you must know where you're, you know, I don't know. It may have been, the interview may have been in June or July, and the kids are like, I said, well, it's a discussion Amy and I are going to have, and we're going to have it as parents, and, I'm, and I'll ta- have a longer discussion about this. And she goes, well, somehow, the reporter then said, your kids are fair game. Took the microphone off, live interview on TV. And I turned and I said, let me just be really clear from here forward. My kids are not fair game. And I walk off the stage. Good for you. Just walk off. Mm-hmm. Only person to call me. Chris Christie says, you're damn right. Put the law down early. Really? The, yeah, totally right. And so I got a lot of, you know, when he ran into some troubles, people called me or, you know, didn't touch it. Hmm. And he called me privately. It's not like he said something. But so when I'm very proud of my kids. One's at Princeton. One's at Brown. The other one who's graduated high school has gone on to the armed forces. Graduated college graduate, gone on to the armed forces. And not just because of the schools, as I like to say. I've not been to the emergency room, the principal's <laughs> office, or the police station. <laughs> and, I don't, let me, and I don't want to know any freaking thing else. <laughs> don't tell me. It's on a need-to-know basis. You're all good. And, and I, yeah, I don't, just show me the report card. I'm fine. I'll pay the bill. Just show me the report card. I don't want to know anything else. <laughs> but on a serious note, so, and I'm going to close on this. I want, to, I want you to hear this is really important to me. And I really want to thank all of you. And I want to thank the extra overflow. And I'm going to go down there to say thank you. So some, you didn't ask this, but when I got elected to Congress in 2002, Zachariah was four. Uh, I think Alana was, well, if Zachariah was four, Alana was three. And Leah's like two or one and a half. But she was acting like she was 20. <laughs> um, through Congress, chief of staff, mayor. You know what I learned? Family is the most important thing. And what I mean by, I've seen all different types of family. I'm not saying, Ozzy and Harriet never existed. It's all full of crap. (laughs) But Amy and I set up early in my career. Every Friday night, we would have Sabbath Shabbat dinner. Every Sunday night, we would have dinner. And then twice a week, based on because of my schedule, Amy would pick when. And then the rest of the day could go chaotic, the rest of the week. But those were involuble. And then every year, even though I took a lot of crap from the press... (laughs) <laughs> we left on Dece- December 15th, and we would go around the, around the world and take the kids. And 
I look at my kids, uh, and I realize, and I don't mean just mom and dad. I'm talking about the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents, etc. Family should not be uh, dismissed, derided. It takes a lot of different structures, etc. But we can't do what we're trying to do, and the family is under a massive amount of assault without family. And I'm a believer in government. I'm a believer in government programs, and they do great good. The one thing they can't do that a family can is love a child. Hmm. And my father, who's a you know just passed away, and I said at his funeral, the thing that he always used to say to us, I never saw a kid become overindulged by too many kisses, too many hugs, and too many times you told them, I love you. Yeah. And I think when you walk through life and you think of all the things we have to do with a city, etc., we have to figure out ways to hold up, embrace, support, and reassure uh, family. Whether that's a single mom, whether it's a gra- grandparents, or whatever. And we don't do that. And to me, that's, if you ask me the biggest challenge we have, that would, that would be at the top of my list. Can't think of a better way to end. Uh, our thanks to Rahm Emanuel, former mayor of Chicago. <laughs> former White House chief of staff for President Obama and author of the new book, The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. I'm Dan Ashley, and this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. One more hand for Rahm Emanuel. Thank Great you. discussion. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.